Welcome back to the Line Podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander, and this is a place that we bring together the world's leading experts on all things health and wellness, help optimize your mind, body, and movement. Today's fantastic conversation was with someone that I have drawn a lot of inspiration from over the years. It is Miss Katie Bowman. Katie is the author of Move Your DNA. She's author of a lot of books, but her most recent book is called Grow Wild and gets into childhood development specifically from a movement perspective and also how that impacts us as adults. She is a biomechanist. She is a pioneer in the conversation of the way that our lives inform the structure and function of our bodies. And that's what we get into in this conversation. If you want to go deeper into this topic, we relaunched an expanded version of the line method that is up for pre-sale now. If you grab it, you will get it just after the New Year's. And you can get that thing over at thealignbook.com. That is thealignbook.com. That is essentially a synthesized version of the most valuable lessons that we've gathered in the podcast over the last seven years. It is a simplified manual that breaks down in detail everything that you need for your body to function optimally. I truly mean that. From sleeping well to having better energy when you're waking up to relieving yourself when you have aches and pains leading to present strength, flexibility, adaptability, and then ultimately longevity is what we're really interested in. So the Align Method book, expanded, revised version, out January 11th. You can get that thing now as a gift to yourself or to a friend uh, by going to thealignbook.com. All right, let's get into it with one of my favorite thinkers on the planet, the beautiful, strong, empowered Katie Bowman. Cool. Thank you so much for making time to do this. You are one of my favorite thinkers in the whole world of physical, mental, emotional well-being because they're all tied together. You can't oh, thank you. separate the whole movement conversation. Do you get tired of people, including yourself? And my experience is that when people use the term movement, I feel like I'm almost like over the word. Like it's like butchered, like movement. This is movement. It's not, it's not fitness. It's not that it's, we're doing movement. You know what I'm saying? You ever got a little bit like, or is that exclusively me? No, I think that a lot of words have lost a lot of their meaning. So, so I don't know if movement is any, I use it all the time and I'm always thinking of a precise definition. And really what I spend most of my time doing is trying to bring people on board to that definition. So what is the definition from your perspective? Well, my perspective is the most basic definition is if we're talking about a human movement in this case or bodily movement, it would be just the body changing position in some way. And it can go all the way down to the cellular level or it can be, you know, on the whole person level. It can be moving from point A to point B or it's just it's a change in shape, really. Change in shape or change in location. Yeah, I think that you have been... I would say a pioneer. Your perspective, I think, has really shifted my approach to my awareness of what it means to move and exist in my body in general and getting into you know concepts like our eyes, our visual muscles. That's a form of movement or thermoregulation. If the, the room gets a little hot or a little cold, that's a form of movement. You know, like it's not just exclusively going to the gym. So right. thank you for that. Within that, from your perspective, where are people undermoved and why does that matter in in the first place everywhere and it matters because it's everywhere i mean like that's just the most general the general thing is in terms of the definition that i laid down earlier like we're not changing our position hardly ever 
you know, like not only are we not moving our whole person from point A to point B regularly, right? So that would be in the most general sense, like you're getting up and you're moving around, but then there's this also idea that you're not even moving your individual parts. Like you're spending a lot of time in a one position, frequenting a single position. So then even the cellular parts to the limbs and bigger parts that you can see with your eyes, they're not changing position. And so it's just, a, it matters because we're in an unprecedented movement drought and so much hinges on our movement. And you laid down some earlier ones in the beginning, you know, the idea that it affects your emotional and these other psychological well-being. And But I would say that it also is part of an ecosystem, like to be living on the planet as a, a living thing and not moving around, like that poses an ecological hardship that we don't really consider because we tend to think of humans as something separate from all other living things in the natural world. And if you had a big other herd of animals that stopped moving all of a sudden, there would be ramifications in the rest of the animal world. And those ramifications are there. We just, we're not really perceiving them or talking about them. Yeah, I think you have like a, a natural, a gift for analogies, which I think is a beautiful way to be able to instruct you know, give like visual pictures of what we're talking about, especially when you're breaking down like sciencey terms. Things mm -hmm. people are, are very abstract. One of the things you brought up, um, metaphor for humans, is the, the the floppy fin syndrome, which I know you've talked about that tons of times. But I'd love to kind of paint that picture of what happens in SeaWorld or wherever you know wherever whales are cruising around in the same direction all the time, and that dorsal fin that would be strong, erect, adaptable, you know, it starts to kind of just flop over into one position and how to be able to see that happen with a creature at SeaWorld and be like, oh my God, that's so sad. And then to be able to draw that over to like, okay, well, that's, you know, what are the connections of that in the human body? So I wonder from your perspective, where do humans, where are humans experiencing floppy fin syndrome in their own bodies? Well, I think we have to on the, have at least on the table that any physical uh, situation that you are in is indeed impacted by your continuous mechanical environment, which right now is unprecedentedly still, you know, compared to the, the duration that your particular anatomical shape has been around. And so I think that everything that you're experiencing physically is related so folded fin syndrome, you know, is what they call it in orcas. It's it's so much easier to see. It's easier to use. And as an example, it's challenging when you are living and have only lived in a community or in a culture where everyone has the same movement behavior as you do. And so it's, you know, like the things that are obvious that most people would be like, oh yeah, that makes sense, would be like low bone density or it would be disc degeneration or knee degeneration or hip degeneration. Gosh, I mean, I'm just like trying to think like what not to say, um, hernias, you know, like, you know, like, cause, because there's the classic things that people can understand like, oh, I could get how moving in a particular way maybe would affect your knees because those are part of the musculoskeletal system. But if we think of a hiatal hernia, we might not put that into a movement related or a move affected by movement condition, but the fact is they all are. Everything is affected by it. It doesn't have to be the only thing that's going on because there's a lot of unprecedented things going on, but movement is the most ubiquitous. Besides maybe the air that you breathe, 
your mechanical environment never really goes away. You're in it 100% of the time. And so since we're at the dawn of just understanding that there is a mechanical environment, I'd say that anything that you're experiencing physically needs to be also viewed through the lens of, and how might the weight and the amount that I move relate to this thing is always a good question to ask yourself. Would pelvic floor dysfunction fall into, I call it floppy fin syndrome. Sorry about that. And a folded fin syndrome. Well, it's not actually floppy. That's the thing is it's folded over and then it is quite stiff in that position. So that's that's why. And I think in Move Your DNA, I clarified that you could say floppy fin because it looks like a big old flopped over fin, but it really has folded and has stiffened back up in the same way that it would have stiffened back up would it have been in its you know erect position. But it is stiffened in a different position based on the mechanics of how the whale was moving during its growth period. Yeah. So with pelvic floor orientation or organization or, or, or function, I think that that's another, I don't, in my experience of myself and, and probably like broadly Western culture, I'd imagine our relationship or my own relationship with viscera or organs, the idea of like intra-abdominal pressure or organization of my respiratory diaphragm or my pelvic floor, any of that, it seems very distant, abstract, like what the hell are we actually talking about here? And how do I actually tangibly get a hold of what these books are saying? What do we need to know about these places? And what are their relationships to each other? And how does what's their broader impact to our health and fitness and longevity and everything? What places? You mean like the pelvic floor or the diaphragm? Yeah, I mean, I, I think they're related. You know, if there's if you pull the relationship of the ribs, or know it's going to affect the relationship of the pelvic floor. But sure, pelvic floor specifically, and then its connections throughout the rest of the body. Well, what about it? <laughs> pelvic floor, I mean, that's definitely, I would say, a big folded fin that we are perceiving as such. You know, like that's where I started. Like my graduate work that I went into specifically was a pelvic floor disorder because I found it so fascinating because I do think of the feet, I must be interested in foundations because I like definitions. I like foot mechanics and I like pelvic floor mechanics because they're all foundational in, in their own way. And so pelvic floor in the same way the feet are sort of like the foundation for the whole body. I think of the pelvic floor as being its own foundation for the contents of the abdominal and thoracic cavities. You know, like that's the basement floor. So yeah, like definitely the way that we use or don't use. I think I like to be really specific here that it's not only about a lack of movement, because I think that there are some people, maybe yourself and, and certainly other people listening who do move quite a bit, who view themselves as movers, but the movement that they are doing, like even if they're high in volume of minutes, it's not like a, a very <laughs> diverse or well-balanced movement diet, so to speak. And so again, in Move Your DNA, I spent a lot of time delineating that you can even have a nutrient, even like a definition of a nutrient doesn't actually mean de facto that it's a good thing. It means that it's been identified to have an amount that is needed, a right amount. And so when we get this concept of like, oh, it's a nutrient, it must be good. It's like, give me all of it all of the time. It's like, well, you're missing what the actual foundational definition is. So I think that there's a lot of people who are movers who deal with pelvic floor issues and I, in the way that there are people who aren't movers at all who also deal with some of the same issues. And that's pretty intriguing. Um, and then you realize that, oh, there is actually a dosage of movement that different body parts need that can explain why on either side of the continuum you have similar failings, whether you're on the extreme of a lot of movement or not so much movement, that we need to have a more nuanced movement discussion. So yeah, pelvic floor is a great place to look. 
Yeah. I feel like humans, we have like these innate healing mechanisms that it's like these onboard systems that naturally by living a more natural lifestyle and you know, whatever natural means to you, but natural say like hunter gatherer ancestral, like you live in the woods, you're going inevitably, you're going to squat a lot. You're going to be on contoured surfaces. You might be barefoot or wearing like moccasins or something. That's kind of, you're, you're capturing that full relationship with the ground. You're going to be reaching up over your head. You might be going through very different temperatures. So I guess the question is how does a person start to recapture some of those innate healing mechanisms. You know, we do stuff that causes our cells to be able to respirate and expand and contract and twist and turn and, and, and heal and circulate and renew. How do we integrate those principles into a modern lifestyle without like seamlessly, you know, without looking like a, a weirdo and not that, you know, who cares what you look like, but how does, how does like we bridge that in a way that it really starts to, you know, seamlessly integrate to our whole lives from your perspective? Well, I mean, I, a lot of what I try to do is normalize movement and to normalize it, you know, like what does normalize mean? It's like, okay, well, I do it in my own house. So in a way where it normalizes it for my kids, so they become movers. And then you, you know, I'll write about it and inform people to like, here's why you should rethink why standing instead of sitting in a meeting, you know, isn't rude at all. It's not rude. It's actually a good measure, you know, so like I spend a lot of time trying to address our cultural biases that we have towards movement. That's my work that I've chosen to do. But for the, you know, the general householder just going, okay, well, what do I start doing? It's like, well, you can sit in a variety of positions. You don't have to take all of your sitting in one position. It's not strange for you in your own home to move your body in the way that you would like to move it. Like that's not going to be strange. Um, you might have a, a partner who's looks at you as like, I don't want to sit on the floor. I want to sit on this couch. And like, that's fine. Like you might have to deal with some psychological duress that way. But you know, like walking more, I don't think there's a lot of resistance to people walking more. Choosing to sit instead of standing during a meeting can be as simple as, you know, my back's been bothering me. I would choose to stand versus sitting. So I think it's just getting comfortable in communicating. I, I, people are let off the hook for moving when they have an injury. You have to have some sort of reason where you behaving outside of the norm would be like easily accepted. And I think something like my body hurts me when I do this and everyone's like, oh God, I mean, it hurts your body. You know, it's like, you know, feel free to do what you need to do. But the idea of like suffering in silence by sitting, so it's like, it's the same thing. So I, I you know, I encourage you to, you know, speak clearly. Like I, you know, people all the time, like I do different things or I'm traveling and they always want to give me, you know, a chartered car to wherever I'm going. I'm like, no, I'm going to stay. Or, uh, they stay at this nice hotel and we'll get you a driver and we'll move you here. I'm like, no, I'm going to stay at the closer hotel and walk in because if I don't do that, I'm not really able to do this kind of work at all because me fitting movement in during my work time or transportation time is really the only place that's left for it to go. So selecting ac active transportation because you're trying to get up your steps per day or you're trying to fit in five extra minutes of movement. I think when we make the justification is like, I want to get out of this chair because being chairs are unnatural, that that's kind of flagging. Like people can't really hear that as easily as they can, which is like, I'm doing this for my benefit for this reason. And then they can do it. Like they can accept it much more easily. So that's how you work it in. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a funny thing. You have to, you kind of have to like victimize yourself. You don't have to, but it's, it's, it, it where I've done it before. I've had very similar scenarios where I've, I've literally had that same thing. It's like, oh, I've got a back thing or whatever. And then you're like, yeah. oh, okay, cool. You can do it. Sure. You can do whatever you want. With the, the visual system, 
you were the first person to kind of turn me on to that I really just the idea of and this was like years ago but the idea of your the lens of your eyes changing shape based off of the distance that you're looking at and you know the ciliary muscles are contracting and relaxing and like there's this whole orchestra of systems that are allowing you to bring different images into clarity and then along with that outside of outside of just like the, the the mechanical function of those systems is how those systems make you feel at a, at a mental emotional level you know and so when you are in a myopically focused position staring in on a thing you're kind of more executive function like get stuff done you know kind of like a shark you know and then when you go into that panorama you know you take in the whole scene that's kind of oversimplifying but kind of sending the indication to your autonomic nervous system that it's like it's safe to take in the whole scene it's safe to, to kind of relax and take it all in you know it's like gives you space for pause and exhalation and like ah you know and so i wonder at, from your perspective have you have you thought about that like the, the relationship of our mechanical movement how that bridges into the way that we think and the way that we feel is that something that you like stew on much yeah i mean i pretty much stew on anything relating to movement or stew in i'm not sure what it is but but i, I do think that the way that we move and again i mean movement in a really big sense is that even the fact that, you know, the bulk of what many people take in most of the day is not really being able to even see 20 feet beyond their face. Like we're just really staring at things very close that I do think it affects how we perceive the world is. And then of course that's going to affect how we feel about it and how we're processing different things. So yeah, it's definitely on my radar. Like I don't know what I can contribute to a solution beyond what is the bulk of my work, especially right now, is like getting people to understand the need to get out. <laughs> like that it's not only to move more, that the, in order to fully move more, you actually have to leave your walled dwelling. You have to be able to physically interact to the best of your ability with distances and textures and shapes because those things are moving you in a unique way in a way that you can't fake when you are in a close space like i remember having this conversation with someone about oh well if you want to change that lens movement with your eye you can just make the font really big on your screen and i was like no you're it's the distance to which you are focusing on something. The size of it doesn't matter. It's how far it is from your face. That is the only thing. And so it's really important to understand a lot of these concepts when it comes to movement or else you think you could sort of finagle or trick yourself out of it. But no, a lot of these movements require you and a half a mile between the thing that you're looking at and being able to focus on. Like it's, it's really a specific thing that... Uh, a phenomenon that that exists that we have to just deal with the reality of um, that we might need a lot more of than we're actually getting. Yeah, and it seems like I did an episode with Bruce Lipton. He's like the biology of belief epigenetic guy. And one of the things that he mentioned in there is if you want to change the uh, function of a cell in a petri dish, you need to change the the culture that it exists within. You know, so you change the environment, and then the cell shifts. As opposed to like going in with like tweezers or kind of titrate little you know substances onto the cells. Like you know, you change the the culture in which it inhabits, and then just it shifts because ultimately it is it is its environment. And I think with in like the the visual conversation, you could be in your apartment kind of doing eye exercises and kind of spacing out, blurring or focusing or left, right, or, you know, whatever you're doing. But 
within at least the conversation around like myopia, the bigger topic in that isn't just looking at the distance, but it's also getting photons of light to sure. hit your eyeballs. You know, so there's like, okay, it's like, it's really what we're trying to mimic in this supplement form of, of fitness to kind of use your language is what you would just naturally do outside again. So again, it's like bridging that gap, but it, it really, it seems to me like what uh, all signs lead back to just like go the freak outside. Yeah, but we are a culture that is come from uh, like, I'm studying Aristotle right now. I'm like, oh, I understand so much more. Like we live in a world created by this one person, you know, that, that, that really was able to like saying like, this is, this, these are the steps that we need to take to really like understand things and be like, okay, so this is what it's like when your way of interacting with the world is by breaking down all of the elements and understanding them, the the individual components one at a time. And so we are not yet at the stage in our cultures, in our culture's humanness, where understanding the collection of things as they work together is what comes first. Like it's like, I just see sort of like an evolution of culture alongside, you know, an evolution of structure. Like there's, there's sort of those things going on. And so we are just of a culture that considers elements more so than the whole. And that's, you know, that's how we've all been educated. And, you know, that's sort of the priority. That's how we've navigate. Like that's how we navigate understanding. Like that seems to be the supreme way that we collectively understand. And there's people who understand in different ways, but this is the accepted and most promoted ways of understanding. So it's just, I think it's a byproduct of that is that we spend more time on the shreds in, in, instead of looking at the whole paper at a distance. <laughs> yeah. It's like the difference between a, a complex or a, a complicated system. Like a complex system thrives on, on variation and unpredictability. And, you know, if your heart rate variability, you want it to oscillate. If it's a consistent, don't, 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 it means that you're, you're not detecting the subtleties of what's happening in your system. And, you know, like our bodies really thrive on, the, on that variability. Whereas, you know, a, a complicated system, which would be like, you know, like a mechanism, like a car, it thrives on that repetition and consistency. And if anything varied happens, it's like, oh my God, like this is, this is really bad, like red alert. And so I wonder, my mind always or typically goes into the directions of like, I wonder how the broader culture that we exist in being, you know, say since if you're going back to like Aristotle and stuff, since like before it was like paganism and circles and nature and, you know, nature worship and all that. And then like the Roman Empire, and then we got pillars and right angles, and we kind of got this like structured system. And now we're in this technological era where it's, you know, ones and zeros. And I wonder if our physical movement is kind of an expression of the way that our, our culture is more broadly thinking. That sound like some crazy shit. Uh, yes, and <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't mean crazy like in a dismissive way. I just think that I don't think that you can easily or have ever been able to to easily separate physiology and adaptation in a biological sense, meaning like a change to the human from culture. I think that culture is a known influencer of our morphology. And so I think that, yes, we are just, because we're in a place where we understand concepts like morphology, we have access to record keeping, that we're just maybe the first group of people really 
witnessing it. And we're certainly the first group doing podcasts about it. So it's, I don't know that we're doing anything different, actually. And I don't know that the group 2000 years ago weren't looking around going, man, like bodies were in way better shape 2000 years ago. Like, I don't like, I, like, I think that we're just on a trend. What's different right now is, is probably the, um, the acceleration. It's, it's the exponential effect. Like it's just unprecedentedly fast right now. And that's, that's why it's noticeable before these changes were much more slowly and in an undocumented, likely undocumented fashion. Do you, I wonder, do you foresee like, uh, this is more Wiley topics. I hope this is okay to go into this kind of these random weeds, but do you think there will be some type of split like the beatniks, you know, and like the technological bionic, you know, we just, we're like, we're waiting for the solution. Eventually we'll just become robots. And then there's going to be a group of people that are like, we're going to stay human and keep on moving around outside and such. Well, I'm a big sci-fi <laughs> fan. So, so like I'm reading, I'm reading this book right now and <laughs> like, so I guess we're already out in the weeds. We might as well stay there. But I think that really good sci-fi is exploring these questions. And so there's a couple of really good books that are just like, have cha- they've actually changed my perception on things. So, uh, oh God, I don't even know where to start on this one. But but in, the, in this one sci-fi book, some people of the human race have progressed to the point of, <laughs> like, I don't know what they did. Like, they've created... A, they got a, I'm just going to like butcher it right here, but like they've got a spaceship full of chimpanzees and they've got some sort of bacteria or virus that when the chimpanzees are flown to this faraway planet, this bacteria will quickly accelerate and get these chimpanzees to where humans are now on the planet. So like they don't actually have to send humans this far. They can just send these chimpanzees that reproduce faster or whatever so they can quickly multiply and live on these other planets. Like rapid evolution. Yeah, they, they figured out a way to to make it go faster, but the conflict, wow. but this point right now, but then it all goes wrong, of course. And, and then like it turns out that this formula gets on spiders. And so now the spiders are the dominant culture. But the point is the person and the reason it goes wrong is because the current tension on planet Earth is between the people who so clearly understand that this is absolutely the best or the right um, forward thinking direction humanity should take is in conflict with, we'll just call them, yeah, the nature heads, like the people who think that humans should just stay where they are and, and do their thing and know their place and they're and not mess with it. Right. And so there's that, there's that tension and the forward thinkers think that those are the backward thinkers and the backward thinkers think that those are evildoers. Right. Like, and so it's the science fiction narrative around a book that I recommend everyone read, which is the wizard and the prophet, because the wizard and the prophet is explaining something that's happening or happened right here. And it was really the split, another divergence of thought, but it was so clearly laid out that what I realized it's like, oh, yes, we're always as humans, I'm not going to say humans, as Western culture. And this was a book about really America's take on, um, there was like a food decline that was happening. It was, it was when 
humans, but like really, I would say Americans and maybe Europeans as well, first realized that there was something called carrying capacity to the planet and was like, oh, like, wait, like, that was a new idea. Like, we like, there's resources that we're taking. Yeah, of course. Right. So the two diverging ways, like both groups end up seeing the problem as the same, but the wizards see the solution as being a forward, creating a new technology that will inevitably create a new problem that a new technology will solve. So you're just in a loop of technology and don't believe that there are natural limits to humanity, that the only reason we perceive those is because we haven't solved the problem for the limit that we perceive and that the profit group believes that there are biological limits and is trying to operate within those perceived limits. And I just realized like, oh, and neither one knows who's right. Like there is no strong understanding in either way. It could go either way. So on a continuum, we're all sort of inclined more towards wizard or profit. And just understanding that made me understand how people make the choices of the conclusions that they do and that everyone's just sort of hedging in the direction that they think it's going to be. And I don't know, that caused me a lot of peace, like where normally things cause me a lot of angst. And so I think that there's a history of humans coming and going and blending and becoming new things. So I think that, you know, evolution is a forward process and you have to just pick your, you have to pick your alignment points well. You have to give deep thought to your alignment points of how you, you know, align your behavior to make sure that you're considering as many things as possible. And I know that's not what you asked me, but, but we're- No, I love that. We're way out. We're way out there. I love that. (laughs) Okay. I want to take a moment and discuss something that has been invaluable for my sleep over the last year, and that is magnesium, my favorite hands-down company or supplement to support such things such as sleep and muscular recovery is Mag Breakthrough. What I like about Mag Breakthrough is that it contains all seven different forms of magnesium as opposed to just one or two or a few, and it's great. Magnesium is one of the supplements that I think everyone ought to be taking, reason being it is largely deficient in modern-day soil. So where we would have gotten magnesium historically. We're now not getting it from that source. So a great place to get it from would be a simple capsule form. Covers your bases each day. I take this stuff every day and I value it immensely. And you can get yourself a discount by going over to magbreakthrough.com forward slash align podcast. That's M-A-G-B-R-E-A-K-T-H-R-O-U-G-H.com forward slash align podcast. I think this truly is the best magnesium that I have come across. And like I'd mentioned, it's invaluable for sleep, for muscular recovery, and a plethora of different processes in your body. Upon purchase, if you do not absolutely love this, if you do not notice a change in your sleep, you do not notice less muscle soreness and things of the sort, then get your money back. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee. So try it out. See how it goes. I think you're going to love it. That's it. Magbreakthrough.com forward slash align podcast. I also want to share a valuable tool that I've been utilizing to enhance my hydration. That is Elements Hydration Packets. I really love this stuff and I'm so grateful to get to share it with you guys. Uh, It's a perfect combination of potassium, magnesium, and sodium. And all the flavors are delicious. It's all natural. I love and value the owner, Rob Wolf, the founder. Um, He is a fantastic person. I trust his mind and his ethics and his values emphatically. I think he's fantastic. And this stuff's good. So if you want to try it yourself, enhance your water so that you're able to, one, be able to absorb your hydration. 
you need minerals, you need electrolytes, not just for the healthy functioning of your whole body, but also for your cells to be able to absorb and utilize that water. So try this stuff before you work out, after you work out, especially if you don't like any kind of sauna stuff, things of the sort. I think that you will really dig it and you can try a free sample pack by going over to drinklmnt.com forward slash align. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash align. It's just five bucks for shipping. We'll send you out a free sampler pack and I think you guys are going to dig it and like the rest of the sponsors. Typically, if you do not absolutely love the stuff upon purchase, then you can get your money back. 100% money back guarantee. Nothing to lose. It will improve your hydration experience. I guarantee this. And uh, that's it. That's all. Back to the podcast. It's an interesting thing of like the domesticated human. Like we're clearly like we're we're well domesticated. And whether you realize it or not, even if you live in some park, open space or whatever, we still like we control the nature. You know, we're controlling how much we hunt and there's tags and it's, you know, there's regulations. So it, there's not a, a ton of undomesticated space that people are living in the United States. So within that, if you take a domesticated... You mean like regulation would be the sign of domestication or is there some other... And and dysregulation or unregulation would be the sign of undomesticated? Or what's yeah. the definition there? I mean, definition is really whatever you want it to be for you. But I would... Yeah, I, I'm for, asking for you. For me, for, for, me, for me in this moment, I guess, would be under the, like, the purview of humans. Like humans have... They've, they've regulated the system. It's kind of, you can go here, you can't go here. There's, they're aware there's, there's a dam upstream. There's, you know, which is effect. Like we have our fingers in it. We have our fingers in the pot. And I'm not saying that's a bad or good or any moralistic yeah. thing. It's just, it just kind sure. of, kind of is. And so within that, so the, the domesticated human, then there's like the, the 90, whatever percent of people that are like really deeply domesticated, kind of like me. You know, I'm like in my house with if you were to send the domesticated animal back into the nature, you'd have to kind of like retrain them certain skills to be able to survive out there. Most humans probably never going to actually be sent out into the nature, but it's still I think there's there's valuable skills you know, even just these innate healing mechanisms that our bodies can kind of go through just by like, ideally, this is kind of like a rolfing perspective, or structural integration, or osteopathy, or lots of different perspectives, but get the body to a point where its existence becomes restorative, you know, as opposed to always doing this three steps forward, two steps back, two steps forward, three steps back, and kind of just doing this dance, just kind of fighting off attrition. Like, how do we get the system in an orientation, you know, from joint to joint and tensegrity of the whole and all of that? that just every breath that the person takes isn't one of friction and angst, but one of restoration and cellular repair and circulation. Mm -hmm. And how does every step come to that point? That's the question. I think if, if we can get to that point, I think that that's, you know, that's a really big deal. I know that was just a lot of like spitballing of words, but do you have any thoughts on any of that? Well, I guess, so I just have to go with my thoughts in order. So, I mean, the, the difference between a domesticated human and a domesticated dog, say, in a in a purely biological sense, is that there's genetic differences between a domesticated dog and a wild and a wolf. But I don't think that the same can be said for humans as much. You know, we have to draw a line at some point that we made in a human. So I do think that we what we have is that capacity to be thrown back into the woods and and our morphology isn't working against us, where the domesticated dog has some morphological issues that is, wor that is working against them now. So humans haven't lost their morphology. Now, morphology just means shape. And I mean, like, we can be out of shape in the way that we think about it, but we retain the capacity to change 
that shape. Like we still hold the spectrum of those shapes in most cases. So, so like that's working for us. To me, that's, you know, I, I consider that a lot about at which point are we going to call, at which point would a human ever call a different type of human? Like how far do you have to be down the line before you make that distinction? But we have a classification system that we work in. So, and, and, and it can be, biology can be sort of squishy. So like there's a wiggle room for that. But like right now, if we just went back to say 10,000, years when I think we would be arguably into your definition of undomesticated, right? Like there's no regulation. We have, yeah, we go pre-agriculture, we go 16,000 years or whatever, that we still have that same morphology where we can be successful, but it takes the work. But then to your later point, so like that was just my comment sort of what went in my mind when you went by, but I think it's related because we have that capacity. And then the question is, okay, how far into the woods do I want to go in my highly comfortable life, you know, that, that has paid off in other things that I find valuable and that I utilize and is, you know, part of how we've gotten to be so regulated or domesticated or whatever the word is. I think that the, I, the concept of your body, like I, I always said that movement is a renewable resource. And like to a certain extent, what I mean is like the body is a renewable resource through movement. And I think that's sort of what you're saying about these healing systems. So like, I think I'm like, I'm big on the concept of alignment because I think that many of our rest, like restoring or healing or just non-degenerating systems depend on a position of things to be in a certain way. Like, that's why I don't think it's just move. I think that these parts have to be moved in particular ways because we already know that you can move a lot with a hinge off in a certain way and actually go opposite to healing that particular structure. Even if it makes your whole body better in other ways, that particular structure, the one joint that's off is going to not have that same freshness as all the other pieces. And so like, to me, that's why alignment is so important is because we want to distribute that well-being over all of our parts because we're only as well as all of our parts. Like you can be in really great shape and you can have a tiny piece. And anyone who's ever had like one inch of their back go out or one spot on their foot that cannot bear weight knows that that one inch can take 200 pounds down in an instant. And so to me, that's like, that's what it feels like what you're saying is if we can get people to choose to increase their movement in a way to choose to start using their body in a way that is optimizing the structure of it, then they're able to tap into more body renewing. I mean, I don't, I'm just making, I'm just making up terms right now, but if you can take that concept and realize that that goes outside of your own body, that it's in the environment too, that, that I think of this ten, tensegrity seems to be a word that is used a lot. Like it, I think you're, you come from a fascia background and a fascial word, but to me, tensegrity, that concept is outside the body as well, that there are tensions that are being placed on your body by the environments that you are in. They're in your relationships. They are in, I mean, I think one of the big tensions that is on the body in a space that hasn't been really built to accommodate humans is you must move for what you need. And as we've severed those pieces, it'd be just the same as if you severed some of these internal tensions. There's just a collapse. And like what we're feeling or seeing right now is a collapse of the human structure in just the sense of it's it's just not performing as it was before 
throughout history because we've clipped a lot of the the things that kept us pulled in more outward directions. So, you know, we're going somewhere. We're always going somewhere. There's no de-evolution. There's only evolving to the next thing. But what the thing that we become always depends on the environment in which we're in. So we're really hedging that the environment continues to be able to provide how it did before in order for this structure that we have to work. So I've just always assumed like, it's the same reason that I don't, you're not going to see me jumping out of an airplane with a parachute because I have to put too much dependency on that piece of structure working exactly for me to go to the next state. So I tend to err on the, I'm going to keep up my own strength in in a world that doesn't involve, like, I want to make sure I can still, and I'm talking about like getting up and down off the floor. Like, I want to make sure that I can depend on my own structure and don't have to depend on the extra environment for as long as that's possible for me, because I don't know if there's going to be a chair there tomorrow. It probably is, probably is in my lifetime, but there's been major changes in humanity over a long period of time. And I do think that what we're talking about is being adaptable. And we are adaptable in the in the broader sense of like, we have that range of capacity, but we are plagued by rate. There's a rate at which it takes for you to get on board with a new scenario. So like, I keep myself hopefully in a place, and I could always do better, I'm in a place where I can quickly pivot to whatever new environment. And that just means a new scenario like should come my way. Yeah, I think that's such a, a cool idea that I don't think I've, I've heard the idea of tensegrity going beyond, you know, the tension within the, the musculoskeletal system. But I'm, th- I'm thinking that way all the time. And that's essentially another way of saying the, the Bruce Lipton Petri dish culture of like we're continuation of the whole and there's this balance between in and out. And so my first place my mind goes to that is thinking of like the collapse of the of the facial muscles, you mm-hmm. know, and people like like mouth breathers and not utilizing, you know, the, the, the tongue as like a natural retainer, you know, opens yeah. up the maxilla and kind of keeps space in there. And then that leads to a whole cascade of issues. And then the other place my mind went with that is that relationship, the tensegrity of in and out, the inside and outside. It's like a person that feels unconfident or a person that feels unsafe or the person that feels unloved or unlovable or any of that, uh, or they don't want to be seen. That's That has, has structural, musculoskeletal, cellular, hormonal repercussions you know, in real time as they're feeling away, all that, you know, and, you know, I think it's an interesting thing that scoliosis, from my understanding, is the highest rate of that is is with female adolescent girls, like young girls going through puberty and things like that, which I don't know what the connection there is exactly. But I think it's that that tensegrity, that balance of the way that I perceive the world and, you know, what's happening outside, the way that it actually forms the shape of my body outside of just the mechanotransduction, you know, like immediate pressure, like that leads to the pressures. Anyways, I'm spinning out, but you know, Well, I just mean that like there's a direct cause of pressure and there's an indirect cause of pressure. You having to go out and get something to eat is an important part of how movement works. It's an invisible part. And so if you've chosen to look at movement from the point at which your muscle contracts, then you might miss what makes movement happen. And so like, that's always been a a broad theme through my work is like, it all depends on when you choose to look at the phenomenon. There are many coincidences. So again, that's back to my Aristotle text that I'm reading right now. So we use the term co-coincidence to mean like not related, but happening at the same time. But it just means coincident. Like these two things happened at the same time. So we don't always know that 
what happens coincidentally is part of the phenomenon of how it happens. But when you live in a sedentary world and are trying to study movement, you have to realize that you are studying movement without its original precursor. Like we've gotten rid of the precursors for movement. And they were like, how does movement happen? It's like, oh, it happens because you buy a DVD and then you put it on. Oh, but you have to want to buy the DVD. So it's just like there are mechanisms in our physiology that works in their environment. Like it's not so easy to peel an animal out of its environment and study it and understand, oh, this is how it works. The conclusions that you make when you study like, all animals used animal science used to be all captured animals until there was a new science that was creative, like studying animals in their actual habitat. And it was amazing the difference between the two. We haven't done that for humans. We're not even at the point of really seeing humans as part of the animal kingdom. You know, like the fact that we have really unique features makes us distinct, but it doesn't make us not animal. Like it's it's the same thing. So like I'm just always championing to keep the bigger picture at mind so that we don't lose important details when it comes to movement, like motivation or like what would make it easier for people to get moving more because we're failing at that. And movement teachers are failing at, and, and movement science is failing at understanding how movement actually works. It's just happening less and less and becoming sort of an ex- extinct phenomenon. So I'm like just trying to keep that picture really big. I'm like, let's keep the phenomenon intact um, when we look at it so we understand. Well, it's like reducing down to, to purely and, you know, an anatomical kind of two-dimensional sure, sure. reality of what's happening. If it's like the, the idea that I've, I've heard elsewhere is like, you know, a fist. If you make a fist, you could say, oh, you flexor digitorum lung. Like there's like there's all this anatomical explanation of what's happening, but there's no discussion of what does the fist mean? You know, what invoked the fist? Is it a fist of anger? Is it a fist of joy? Did we just win? Like what's like what's like the like the, the spirit behind the fist? And I think that there's an option or an opportunity to start to to kind of re, I don't know, reconstitute or re you know, transfigure the people's relationship with movement as opposed to being this just two-dimensional you know, A to B, do it because you need to burn calories because you don't feel, feel ashamed of your fat ass, you know, and kind of come into a place of like, you know, something deeper than that. You know, you're like, you're going to die at some point. I think we're there. I mean, we're at the point where we're starting to think about it as something more. And that is, this is what it looks like to to go from not thinking about something to thinking about something. Like human, right. humans haven't thought about all the things. Like we are just starting to think of things all the time. Like, just like if you look at kids, you're like, it's so amazing. They just figured out what this was. I'm like, yeah, you're doing that all the time. You, we, collectively, we are doing that all the time. If, even if you don't get to have your own aha movements, moments, like like it's a it's yeah. a thing. I okay. feel bad saying move your fat ass because it feels judgmental. I would say you don't want your ass to jiggle as much. That feels less judgmental. Um, the, something that I think is interesting from, again, more stuff that I've, I don't know if I borrowed this from you or where I got this from, but the idea of the relationship of essentially permaculture, you know, and, and farming and such and the way that we live in our bodies and just the generally like the, the principles of permaculture are so cool. I, I wrote them down here. I'm not going to read all of them out, but one of the ones that I find to be relevant for what we're saying, uh, the 11th principle of permaculture is use edges and value the marginal. 
And kind of the description with that would be kind of like using neglected portions of land, you know, the back little corner and these little places in, in the land. It's like, oh, those are actually really incredibly fruitful plots. We just haven't, we don't have the tools or the mechanisms or the kind of the vision on how to start to leverage those spaces to start to bear fruit or whatever. You know, and it's that's essentially I really I think a beautiful analogy of what we're doing in our bodies, where we have all these marginalized spaces in our bodies that bear a bunch of good stuff. We just don't really have the vision to to re-engage them, I guess. Any thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, I right. think that that's so, so much of my approach to moving more is like, I understand that a lot of the, the inertia to overcome, to change lifestyles and move big parts is a big hurdle for a lot of people. So I'm like, why don't you start by moving the small things while you're sitting right there? Just cross your legs this way. You know, like I definitely like to start with those spaces because in a sedentary culture, like most of your body falls into that space. Like if you think of movement as weeding your body, we're not weeding much of the areas of our body. So, so it doesn't have to be big. It can be, it can be small in size, but because those small in size places are so everywhere, it ends up being large in volume, you know, or take a minute, take a small, those unused minutes of you're going to sit in your car waiting for someone to come out in 12 minutes because it's not enough time to do anything. It is get out, go walk for three minutes, you know, so to approach the minutes or this parts, the parts as insignificant, like we need to stop doing that. Like every, like an hour is only accumulated minutes. Your body is only accumulated tiny spots. Like there are no tiny spots. There are, there is no insignificant time. Like start valuing everything. Yeah. And so you have a, a new book, Grow Wild. I feel like we were talking about Grow Wild throughout this, but the, the focus is more on developing children. And I listened to it like a month ago because I thought we were going to do this a month ago. But can you describe the book a little bit or like who's it for? Or what's what's who should be reading? Said, well, my, said book or what? my main book was like probably the one that we talked about most that, and that was the most mind bending for movers was probably move your DNA, right? Like that reframed movement as like, oh, it's a whole body phenomenon. It's a part by part phenomenon. It's this thing that's, you know, like it's like a nutrient, like, but it was like the theory of it. And I felt like we needed something really practical to show how a life contains all of those movements. You know, like a big part of that book of moving your DNA was like all the movement that used to happen didn't happen during exercise. It used to happen distributed throughout the day to get all the things that you needed. Um, people tend to care more about their children getting their needs met than they do about getting their own needs met. So I thought that that was a good portal. And I also think that adult bodies are the adult bodies they are because of how they spent their juvenile period. And the group of children born now will be the digital natives. They are the first group to have digital technology in their hand almost from birth. You know, they're in, in, they're in front of an infant, like, so their eyes. Think about instead of like looking out and around, like you're going to spend a lot of hours with your eyes on something that's right in front of your face in the back of a car, right? This is a brand new environment and you're setting your adult body in this juvenile period. And so I wanted to flesh out a lot of the concepts that we were talking about for children specifically, because a lot, I mean, a lot of people as adults, they would come and they probably come to you as well saying, if I had known some of this stuff when I was younger, I would have lived my life differently or I could have made more changes so I didn't have this problem. And I thought, okay, well, I'm just going to make a primer from like, 
newborn to 12 and then at least it exists out there and i and i think it's for everyone with a body like everyone went through the juvenile period although it definitely is written for someone who is influencing children's environments now which is effectively all of us you know even if you are childless you are still creating a society for children and like we need more dynamic people full stop because dynamic people prioritize movement and make sure that all the spaces don't become no movement allowed, which is what's happening. Like we're just seeing a loss of space for children to even move. So like collectively, we have the technology that entertains them in place. So it makes it okay to start reprioritizing those movement spaces to something that everyone's doing, which is being on their technology. So like there's definitely this lockstep relationship between what a culture is doing and then what it goes on to do um, when movement is concerned. So we're, we're seeing movement spaces declining and, and then of course movement skills going down. So it, it's, it's all about that. Um, and it's about, again, it's about movement as nutrition. Like I think that that's the biggest piece of that book is you'll be able to really understand movement as a nutrient from that book. Yeah. You had another big like 75 cent word in the beginning of, of the, it was kind of like mechanotransduction for plants. And I tried to look it up and I couldn't find it. Yeah. Fig memorphogenesis. So a fig, T-H-I-G, morph, M-O-R-P-H, and then O, and then genesis. So it's the idea that fig is touch, morph is shape, and genesis is grow. So, so with plants, and like the first line of that book is children are like trees, because I really set up that book. I mean, it's really hard to talk to people about their children because all parents, you know, being a parent, you just, you're so concerned about doing things correctly that it's so easy to get into a cycle of like, oh, I messed that up. Or like, so I'm like, you can free yourself. Like, this isn't a parenting book. This is explaining how it works. But I use plants throughout to show that the mechanics, the biomechanics of plants are the same as people. It's the same thing. It's the same field, it's the same set of equations. The material is a little bit different, but but it just, it's, it's like saying that we would need a whole set of engineering laws for steel than we would need for wood. It's like, no, you just adjust it based on the material. So the, the laws are the same. And just to show like, you can't take a plant in a greenhouse or a tree in a greenhouse and plant it outside and have it do well. It doesn't work. It needs to be outside as it's growing. That's how it gets capable for being outside. And, and so I just break that concept down, I think in a humorous and easy to listen to way, like I, it's technical, but not really. It's very accessible. And there is that big word in there, but I explain what it is below and give lots of examples. So I'm like, I'm like more big words. No, I loved it. I thought it was really enjoyable and digestible and I really enjoyed it. It's, so it's a thing. Is thig. that what I, I was like? T-H-I-G. Yeah. Sorry. I guess with an audiobook, that is a limitation. Ah. My bad uh, enunciation. I was like, Katie's making up words. I'm like, look at all of her fig morphogenesis. Fig morphogenesis. No, it's fig. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you so much. I appreciate you allowing my mind to wander deep into the woods like we are encouraging Likewise. for it. <laughs> Should people go anyplace else? Obviously, get Grow Wild. People are probably just going to go to Amazon. I imagine there's some best place to go. Yeah, they should walk to their bookstore and get it. You don't need to order. You don't need to sit there and, and order a book to come to your house. You can get up and go out and get it if you have that ability. It'll give you some place to go. Like, you know, so yes. Cool. Nutritious movement. You know, you can always find me in nutritious movement, social or online. Like that's where I am. There's plenty, plenty of big words to be found on any of my stuff. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's it. That's all. Thank you for tuning in. Over now. 
Hope you guys enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. I want to share, we are relaunching an expanded revised version of the Live Method book. I want to read a blurb from surfing legend Laird Hamilton. He describes the Live Method book as the foundational principles for unlocking peak human potential. Laird Hamilton. Um, I'm so excited to get to share this book with you guys. And uh, it's, been, it's been truly a life's work, which sounds very cliche. It's a synthesized version of most valuable lessons that we've gathered in the podcast over the last seven years. And I think you guys are going to absolutely dig it. You can jump over to thealignbook.com to pick up a copy. That is thealignbook.com. And then you will see the uh, first page you see will be an opportunity to grab it. And it'll get to you just after New Year's. So if you want to start your New Year's right with a more embodied experience, understanding some of the principles that we discussed in this podcast today slash over the years, then the Align Method book would be the place to go. So thank you so much in advance. If you do decide to grab it, it's over at thealignbook.com. Thanks so much to, to Katie Bowman for sharing her time on here. If you want to share this conversation, can on the Instagram, be like the place. You can tag me at Align Podcast, tag Katie at Nutritious Movement. And that's it. That's all. Thanks so much for reviews on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for sharing. Thanks for implementing this information to your life. Thank you all for tuning in. Pow.